This is episode number 99 with Patrick Bet David. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today and spending a little bit of your time with us here on episode number 99. My name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my partner and co-host, Barbara Allen. And, you know, we are just super excited that we are only one show away, one show away from our 100th episode. And it's been a long journey. And if you've been with us from the beginning, We just want to say thank you. We are so grateful that you decided to join us on this mission and on this journey, be a part of the community. You know, we've we've interviewed so many incredible people, um, amazing people who are giving back both in business and in everyday life. Uh, Average Americans who are giving back to their community. We've had celebrities on this on the show, uh, social media influencers, veteran entrepreneurs, business owners leaders, people from all walks of life. And we're going to continue having these high caliber, high performers and achievers on the show, not only so you can be inspired by their stories, but use their lessons and insight so you can propel yourself forward in your own life. So you can define, build and live your own American dream and do so in a way that uh, gives back and makes an impact in the lives of others. So again, we just want to thank you for being here and being part of American Snippets and tuning in each and every week. Uh, Today we have an amazing episode for you. Uh, This is someone I personally have been following now for a number of years uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, His name is Patrick Bet David. And Patrick is uh, the kind of person that people envy, respect, and or both. Uh, He's at the top of his industry, both in the worlds of finance and social media. And people from all over the world flock to his events and seek his mentorship. Uh, His story is a rags to riches one uh, that began in Iran. He grew up in a refugee camp. And then he took off on this wild ride of hairpin turns, exhilarating highs, and crushing lows as he navigated his challenges and how and learned how to overcome each and every one of them. Uh, so listen in as Patrick shares his experiences that led him to where he is today, his thoughts on faith, mentorship, and sex, and how all those things played a role in a well-balanced life. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Patrick Bet David. <laughs> You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. Today's guest dipped his toe in the entrepreneurial pool in a very unusual situation. Patrick Bet David was just a little boy in a refugee camp when he first found out the merits of, of hard work and entrepreneurship, no matter where you are or what your circumstances are. He then made it to the United States and decided to serve his new country in the United States Army. He credits much of where he is today to his military experience and will unabashedly share those struggles in service and how they led to those lessons that he carries with him today. Patrick Bet David is the CEO of PHP Agency, where he and his COO are on a crusade to change the insurance industry. And I cannot wait to talk about that later, too, because that is cool. He's also the man behind Valuetainment, the media brand that uses value-driven entertainment to teach the fundamentals of entrepreneurship and personal development. If you are not one of his 1 million plus subscribers on YouTube, 
you really ought to be. This man drops value no matter where he goes in this content right there on YouTube and it's free to subscribe and you carry those lessons into your life. They will make a difference. He is also like a little bit crazy for the people he interviews. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Everybody from celebrities to mob bosses, major industry leaders, and of course, our recent favorite, my friend Taya Kyle. Patrick, I am so beyond honored that you are taking the time to be here with us today, especially with what is going on. Tell us a little bit first off about What's going on in your world today, right this minute? This is right off the bat. It's a lesson in commitment. Yeah, so right now we're at a hotel because Addison just got hit with a, a big storm on Sunday, 60, 80 mile an hour winds and uh, uh, tornadoes. And one of the local uh, uh, plants got hit, struck by lightning. So 300,000 pro- uh, residents here and you know, uh, commercial residents also don't have any electricity or the internet. And this morning, they're at 183,000, and our headquarters is one of them. And we rented out a hotel right now. We're working out of a hotel. But uh, that's, that's the benefit. Listen, living in Texas, you may not pay state taxes. You know, gas may only be 240, 250. But the storms, you got to respect. The storm and the allergy, you got to respect. And we're dealing with it right now. Crazy, crazy. Well, I love it. Thank you for, I mean... Really, that's just a lesson that you taught us. We had a lot of stuff going down today, and I was like, man, it's going to be crazy to pull this together. But here we are. So I'm, I'm glad it all, it all came. Now, let's, start, let's just start first off with where you are now and what you're doing in your life now, which is multifaceted, right? You're into, into a lot of different things. But let's start first with your company, PHP Inc., to give people an idea, maybe people who have not heard of you, um, which I don't think there are many. But just in case, let's talk about your company now and what you're doing with it. Yeah, so when I, when I got out of the Army, I, I, I wanted to be a bodybuilder, and uh, I went and hung out with a lot of bodybuilders. I, was, I wanted to be Mr. Olympia. I wanted to marry a Kennedy, kind of like be the Middle Eastern Arnold and yeah. possibly go into politics and movies later on. But uh, I met a, a, f- a female friend, Jean-Vier, who worked at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. We started dating. I started working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter a day before 9-11 and went and got my Series 766, the whole nine, y- the whole nine and stayed in the industry. And then October of 2009, I decided to start our own insurance company with 66 agents out of Northridge, California. And uh, we started it with uh, every single penny I had saved, I put into the business. And then we grew it from 66 insurance agents to now uh, 10,400 agents in 49 states. And Oscar De La Hoya is one of our investors. Gabriel Brenner is one of the investors. Adelaide Fund out of New York, which is a $2 billion fund, is one of our investors. And we've grown it. We now have over 100 offices nationwide. Uh, we used to sell 50 insurance policies a month, 100 insurance policies a month just a few years ago. And last month, we sold 5,850 insurance policies in one month, and we're growing. We're growing aggressively. So that's that's the business side. That's what I do yeah. professionally. Uh, uh, on the uh, social media side, I simply uh, part-time started a YouTube channel. And, you know, one day, uh, Mario and I, we said, let's change the channel's name from Patrick Bay David to Valuetainment. And we said, let's take one word that uh, I can talk about. And the one word was entrepreneurship. And we said, we're just going to go out there and talk about the word, you know, entrepreneurship. That's the topic. And started creating content. And then from there, it grew from, uh, you know, a small uh, channel to 1.3 million and, you know, over a billion minutes watched. And uh, it, it's been an interesting ride, but that's kind of what I do. Yeah. And I love that because it sounds so simple when it comes for you, but every single thing that you just said, carries a lot of weight behind it, a lot of struggle, a lot of challenge, a lot of hard work. It's it, it, when it falls off lips so easily, it can be deceptive. People think, oh, I just decided to start a company with 66, but, but it wasn't just a decision that you made one day and started a company and had 66 employees like magically fall into your lap, right? You had to go through 
a ton of stuff to get there, um, you know, just, just to start. And I've heard you say, and this is something I want to touch on quickly. I heard you say a couple of times that, you know, you kind of joke a little that life insurance is boring, you know, but so tell me, tell me why you say that. Do people kind of roll their eyes when you say you sell life insurance? Like, you know, you know, for people that see the content first and then yeah. they ask me what I do for a living, they think I'm in Silicon Valley. They think I'm in technology. They think, okay. like, oh, he's going to say he's in technology. He's probably a Silicon Valley guy. And then I say, I sell life insurance. It's almost like they're disappointed by it. You know, <laughs> you do what? I do life insurance, something that uh, it's not the easiest product to sell because no one wakes up in the morning saying, babe, you know what I'd like to talk about today? What would you like to talk about today? I think I'd like to talk about dying today. What do you mean dying today? Yeah, let's go talk to some life insurance people and remind us that one day we're going to die and we need some policy. What an exciting yeah. day, right? So, you know, the, the product isn't a product that is bought. It is a product that is sold. Like people wake up in the morning, they go buy shoes. No one sells you shoes. You buy shoes. You go buy food. Yeah. You go buy clothes. But you don't buy insurance. You are sold insurance. So it's a bit of a tough product that to, to market. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of fell in love with the business because what I noticed with the business was it's almost like, uh, um, you know, it, it, everybody chases the next hot, exciting thing. One of the best things I learned uh, 14 years ago, four, 15 years ago by a mentor of mine, he said, go to an industry where there is problems, be the solution, fix it. You'll be wealthy and you'll be a hero. So I looked around and I said, let me see what industries have in problems because everybody was flocking to real estate. Everybody was flocking yeah. to be a loan officer. Everybody said, I'm going to go do real estate. I'm going to go do technology. I'm going to go do this. And I sat there and I said, look, here's a financial industry. Within the financial industry, the insurance industry, the average agent is a 59-year-old white male. And they don't know how to connect with the Latino community. They don't know how to connect with millennials. They don't know how to connect with Gen X's. And the industry is quite boring. If we can find a way to make it exciting, there'll be a big opportunity there. And baby boomers who are born from 1964, 1946 to 1964, the biggest generation of all time, 76 million kids, they're getting close to retirement. They want to have some help with that. That's a good opportunity. And I said, we're going to go there because they're not recruiting agents. The industry is not growing. What if we can figure out a way to innovate it? And we got in and obviously from there, the rest is history. And today, the marketplace is looking at us. The marketplace is growing 2% a year, 2% a year. And we're growing three years in a row, 75%. And that's not, that's not normal to them. No, it's probably not normal to a lot of people, right? But I, so a lot was just said there. And a lot of it is about thinking like, you know, creatively, you got to see a lot of people will go say, I want to make this amount of money or I want to sell this. But what you just pointed out is you have to find the problem and then be the solution. You can't just come up, yep. create, invent a solution to a problem that doesn't exist or that people don't care about, you know, and life insurance, I think is only boring to people who've never needed it or never known somebody who needs it. Right. Like someone like me, I, I honestly don't know where I would have been if my husband, you know, if the military did not have that life insurance policy for him. I had four little boys and my husband was killed and, you know, and I couldn't necessarily continue my job as four little boys and, you know, and a, and, and a husband that was just killed. Right. So um, that life insurance policy is what gave me some year. It gave me time. It gave me time to kind of breathe and be like double parent for my children, you know? So uh, maybe before, you know, when I was in my twenties or early thirties, I wouldn't have ever life insurance. That's for old people, right? Yeah. That's for stuff. 
that, but I, I love what you're doing and I hope that you reach more and more and more people because I will tell you, you don't want to think about it, right? But when you need it and that worst thing happens, the last thing you need to be worried about is paying your mortgage or paying your bills, right? Like just, so I love hearing that people are reaching others and selling life insurance. I think uh, it's more than a product. I think you're actually helping people um, in through the worst thing in their lives. So I hope you, and I know it's just a policy or just that, that or but I would take the word just out and reframe that for yourselves too. So maybe, I don't, do you get to see the people that you connect with that you sell up do you hear back from them on like, oh my gosh, thank God I had this policy or, or is it just, what you just said, yeah. what you just said is why we do what we do. What, yeah. what you just said is why we do what we do. It's, it, it gives people time to mourn. You know, yeah. a lot of times when in the industry, when somebody, if you've never lost somebody like that, you've direct, that dealt directly with, you know, where somebody else handles the funeral and all this stuff, you may not know about it, but if you've dealt with somebody directly that they die and then immediately all the business takes place, how are you going to pay for this? Do you have a plot? Do you have this? Do you have, listen, my husband just died. My wife just died. What kind of a question is this? Man, we run a business. I mean, we have to, you know, we're sorry for your loss, but it's going yeah. to cost $12,000. That's going to cost you $5,200. I don't have that kind of money. We understand. Then you really realize the impact of what yeah. we do for families. And so every time we hear those stories, just yesterday, two stories today, yeah. one came out of the news. A girl got, I mean, this is a pretty terrible story. A, a woman was strangled by her boyfriend because oh he caught her with another man. He killed her by strangling her. She was a policy holder, holder $250,000. And another one, a kid got into an accident, uh, 18-year-old kid got into an accident, and we have to pay $150,000 to the father. This is just yesterday, these two stories. Wow. And, and this is our life every day yeah. the business we're in. It's it's uh, it's unfortunate, but this is why we come out and try to protect these families. And most of them that fully believe in what we do are people that have your type of a testimony where yeah. someone says, listen, get it as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. You don't joke around with that stuff. So anybody mm -hmm. that's listening, <laughs> call this company up right now. And uh, what is the website, by the way, where they can go find out oh, since we're on the topic? You just go to phbagency.com. You'll okay. see the money because our next convention that's coming up in uh, six weeks uh, we'll have nearly 10,000 people at Mirage and our entertainment for those four days will be Billy Bean, which is the guy from Moneyball, the movie with uh, Brad Pitt. Then it'll be Jordan Peterson. And some people know Jordan Peterson. And then it's Kobe Bryant and it's going to be President Bush. We'll be at our conference. So those <laughs> that's be, quite the buffet there. That's, <laughs> that's our lineup at our convention. So it's it's uh, it's interesting what we are what, what's happening right now with the marketplace and PHP. Yeah, that is that is great. So tell me. So now you're the CEO of this company, you're an entrepreneur. Can you think all the way back to maybe the last, when's the last time you had an interview for a job? Like you yourself went into an interview and sat down as a candidate. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think it's more against Danny Dean Witter. Wow. And that's two months before 9-11, uh, 2001. No one's asked me that question, by the way. I, the last company I interviewed with was Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. It's the last company I interviewed with was Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. But you, you know what's amazing? I got to tell you this. Yeah. So, so a lot of times when, when someone asks, so what is it now that you interview people and you're everyone's boss and you're this and you're that? And so I sat down with one of my guys that uh, we were going through and I had a meeting with our executive team. And I said, you guys realize everybody in this room can be fired. I hope you realize your job is not as safe as you think it is. And everybody was quiet for a second because I wanted them to simmer on that. 
I said, I want you to know this is not a threat, even though it sounds like a threat. Let me explain. I said, none of you guys get fired more often than I do. So here's what I mean by none of you guys get fired more often than I do. Every time a customer leaves us, that is a form of firing me. Every time an employee leaves us, that is a form of firing. Every time an agent leaves us, that's a form of firing. And every time a carrier decides to change and go to another place, that's a form of firing. I said, and if I don't do my job as a CEO, you will not be here at the company. You'll go somewhere else. You're firing. So indirectly, I'm in the job of retaining and making the company better all the time because I'm being interviewed every day. Whereas for job interview, you only interviewed one time. When you become a CEO, you're interviewed every day. People are watching every single behavior you have, everything you're doing, how you handle finances, how you handle victories, how you handle a loss, how you handle criticism, how you handle defamation of character, uh, how you handle a setback, how you handle uh, 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 somebody that's trying to bully you around and push you as a competitor. But uh, when you ask me the question about interviewing people, you know, it comes back knowing that today, like even our uh, C-suite executive that we have, our COO, her name is Alice. Alice was the former COO and director of operations for PacLife. PacLife is a couple hundred billion dollar company. She was there for 22 years. And she's got a beautiful home at La Quinta. Her husband was a former baseball player who used to be in a major leagues. He pitched to Pete Rose and they made a lot of money through insurance, but I wanted them as a COO. And she's retired. She's done. She's in her 50s, but they've already made their tens of millions of dollars. They're not like, hey, we need this job because we need another salary. I called her up and I spoke to her. So it's not really she's interviewing for the job. I'm interviewing. She's interviewing to see if she wants to move her family, her and her husband, to Dallas. And then after multiple interviews, she finally agreed to come out here and move to Dallas. So the higher the talent and the higher the people you want, they're interviewing you. So I'm getting interviewed all the time. It's just a different kind of an interview than a job interview. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's a different way of thinking about it. No, it does make sense. And I was actually kind of thinking about it that way too, when I was digging into your story and wondering if you would feel that way. Like if you would feel like every day you're kind of under scrutiny and under spotlight. I think, you know, the, the more success you have, the more people will you know, support you, but then there's also people who just make it kind of a mission to just nitpick and pull away at every little thread and try to like kind of expose something that even isn't there, you know? So I didn't know if that would play, play into to how you felt about that. So on the topic of money, I think sometimes people struggle with the concept of money. When someone says like, that guy is so rich. And then it'll be like, what a jerk or something afterwards. Mm -hmm. Or you want to make money? Why? You want to be better than that? You know, like there's like a negative connotation, but I think that often is from people who don't have money or are struggling to make ends meet or whatever. It's just a knee jerk protective reaction, right? Response. Because when you look at that, if you have to admit that it's easy, that anybody can get it, then you have to admit that you haven't yet. Right. Or that you haven't. But you, I think have one of the better answers I've heard or the better explanations I've heard about what money can mean outside of the material things. I saw, you know, some of the videos that you've done and you had an on-point ex- explanation of it, not just what it can mean for yourself, but the impact that it can have on others, on people you care about and your community. Can you dig into that a little bit and, and give your version of what impact money can have outside of like Lamborghinis and stuff? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, um, one of the most, we had a conference together, we put to, outside of PHP, I put a vault conference together. No PHP person could have attended it. It was only exclusive to people that are 
uh, CEOs, founders, executives, C-suite executives. And we had it uh, four weeks ago in Dallas. Nearly 600 people showed up from 43 different countries. And we went through a four-day session. One of my keynote speakers was Peter Guber, the founder of, uh, he was the executive producer of Batman. He's the CEO and founder of Mandalay Productions. He owns the Golden State Warriors. He was there, the C, uh, chief talent officer of Netflix, a 14-year spoke there. Phil Heath, seven-time Astro Olympia. Michael Francis, highest-paid mobster, and a few other people that were there. But the first day, what we did on the first day was we spent time studying you. And here's what I mean by studying you. We spent time studying the most important product in the world, which is us, which is you. Why? Some of the questions we went into for a good two-hour session was, do you do better with the opposite sex or same sex when it comes on to doing business? What does that have to do with anything? Everything. Why don't you do well with the opposite sex? I know a lot of men that only do well with men and they don't do well with women. And I know men that do well with women, but they don't do well with men. Same goes with women. I know women that do well with women, but not with men. And I know women that do well with men, but not with women. Why is that? What ticks you? There are 20 things that we're driven by. What are you driven by? What are you driven by? And why is that? You know, what are some environments you do well with? Who do you not get along with? What, what kind of people do you not like? Who gets under your nerves? If you were to make a list of five people that get under your nerves, what commonality do they have? If you have five people that get, get along with all the time, what do they have in common? So now you may say, Pat, what does that have to do with money? Everything. What do you mean everything? So for me, I grew up in a family where my mother's side were communists. They believed in communism. And my mother's side said, rich people are greedy all day long. That's all I heard. And I grew up in a family where my dad's side, they were imperialists. And imperialists believe poor people are lazy. So look how confusing this is. <laughs> poor people are lazy. Wow. Rich people are greedy. I'm the kid. Listen, Hillary Clinton's debate with Trump is nothing close to the way. My <laughs> oh, man. When they would debate, there was extracurricular. It was like three dimensional because, you know, plates were flying, you know, oh vapor. it was pretty heated. man. these guys were not messing around. Yeah. If, if half the time we thought we were living a movie is what we were doing. But I watched both of these guys go at it all the time. And I finally said, I got to figure this thing out to see what makes the most sense to me. So then I come to America and I go in the army and then I start realizing the value of money. I start realizing that money is simply a lifeline. What, is your, what do you mean by life, lifeline? Here's what it means. So if today you knew you had $1.9 million in a bank account and your living expenses is $10,000 a month, you automatically know you have about 16 years covered if you didn't work today. Very simple. That's the number. Give or take, depending on inflation, 13 to 16 years covered. Okay. So if you say, you know, I don't like these greedy people. All they care about is money and nice cars and all this other stuff. Great. Why don't you, since you're not greedy, you go make billions. So you can give back to community. Why is it that sometimes people who are not greedy don't want to go make money so they can make a bigger impact? So every time I hear somebody telling me and says, you know, all you rich people, all you care about is money. I had this one time this lady came up to me and she was calling me out and we were in a debate. And I said, uh, ma'am, can I ask you a question? She said, yes. I said, have you ever been rich before? No. I said, have you ever had millions before? No. Have you ever ran a business before? No. I said, have you ever had kids before? Yes. Okay. I said, you, you're not a fan of rich people. I'm not. I said, great. So you've raised kids. I have. 
Have you ever given birth to a child? I have. Have I? No. Can you imagine if I started giving you advice, whether you should, uh, or whether you should do a C-section, whether you should take Pitocin, whether you should take, right. you know, all these different medicines, you should do a natural, you shouldn't get a C-section. You should do a natural baby. That's what you should. What if I started giving you advice on how to give birth to your child? Would you take advice from me? Hell no. That's what she said. I said, I agree. You should. <laughs> I said the same way why you cannot talk to me about what it is to make millions because you've never done it before. Right. So I got a recommendation for you. What's that? Why don't you go try to make millions and see if you could actually do it? Go see if you're willing to put the sacrifices and time away from family and frustrations and fears of running out of money. Why don't you go try it and see what happens? And by the way, if you're so nice and so kind and way more given than these rich millionaires and billionaires, if you are, why don't you go make an example? Why don't you go make money, make an impact in people's lives? Which in reality is, you know, I don't know why this is the case. Married people always want to get their single friends married. So weird. So, oh, <laughs> so amazing when you're married. Man, you should marry somebody, Jack. You know, Mary, you should get married. Life is so much better being married. Bullshit. I know this is. A, <laughs> no, go for it. Yeah. I'm just saying, bullshit. Nobody ever told us the truth about marriage. I mean, listen, when I got married, my wife and I, and my wife was pregnant with our first. And we're outside. She's eight months pregnant. One of our clients is walking in our community. Sweetest lady in the world. We love this lady. She rolled over a couple hundred thousand dollars with us. And she comes by and she says, uh, hey, Patrick, can I talk to you? I said, sure. Can I talk to you in front of your wife? So, yeah, of course. She said, um, this is your first kid, right? We all know it. I said, yes, it is. She says, well, I'm going to tell you guys weird things happen when you have your first baby. I said, what are these weird things? She says, well, it's typically with you and it's struggles I got to tell you about. I said, I'm open. She says, when your wife has her first baby and the baby's born for the first two months, you are not going to get the attention that you were getting pre-baby. And it's going to make you think that she cares about the baby more than she cares about you. And in that moment, she does. You just have to understand that. So sexually, all that stuff, it's wow. not going to be the way it was before. And you just have to understand that. And I'm like, oh, it's, yeah, you know, I'm totally committed. All this other stuff. Totally, it's totally fine. And then she looks at my wife and look what she says. This is how she ends. And she says, but honey, I want to tell you something as well. Even though the last thing on your mind is sex, you got to figure out a way to treat your husband. <laughs> look at the wisdom of this woman wow. for 30 plus years. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. So watch this. Five weeks after we have the baby, I'm frustrated. Okay. And we have one of the biggest fights, terrible fight. And then we're sitting there talking and then we both bring up what this lady said to us. And then I'm sitting, I'm like, oh my gosh, the wisdom of this woman was unbelievable. We're about to come up. Okay. Our, our 10 year anniversary is coming up in the next two weeks. Oh, exactly. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, I've always said, I said, I don't know if I can be married for 20 years, but I know I can be married one more year. And so we take it. One <laughs> because marriage with three kids is not easy. Moral of the story is the mm. following. Here's the moral of the story. The point I'm trying to make to you is the following. The point I'm trying to make to you is, you know, this whole thing called life um, doesn't come with a manual in every aspect of it. A lot of the things on how we view life is how pastors, teachers, professors, parents, siblings, cousins, grandma, grandpa, uncles have brainwashed us to believing the, the topics of life that we are going to face, marriage, kids, faith, money, you know, raising kids, health, 
we have certain views about all of these important topics that we're all going to face, taxes, politics, due to these people brainwashing us and influencing us. The first thing we need to do once we become adults is to question every single one of those things. And one of them is a lot of times family passes down the message of money is evil and rich people are evil. And if you don't question that, eventually you're going to think that's the case as well. And you're going to live a poor life and a broke life because you're just following parents' footsteps. And it's eventually got to be stopped. And it typically is only stopped by people who have the courage to question every single thing that was taught to them rather than just living a life of blindly saying, oh, you're right. I'm just going to keep doing this as an adult. As a child, I get it. As an adult, I don't. You got to question everything. Yes. So that brings up a lot of things um, that I wanted to just ask you about. First, since you We'll, we'll go backwards for what you just said last. Questioning everything. Did I see correctly that you even got kicked out of Bible school when you were six years old for, for questioning Absolutely. things? Absolutely. <laughs> My Bible study, eventually, we would sit there and the teacher would make the mistake and ask questions. Do you guys have any questions? And I was always mm-hmm. really like, yes. Can I ask you why 100 people died in uh, Tehran last week? And if God really loves people, why would he allow a hundred people to die? And, you know, many of them were young kids. Is God okay with that? And eventually the teacher couldn't have answers for me. That's why, by by the way, there's a reason why I was an atheist for 25 years of my life. She couldn't answer me. And then eventually the teacher uh, went to my uh, parents and said, look, we we just can't have your kid in our classroom anymore. He questions every single thing we do. So, yes, that was the case at six years old and not much has changed. Not much has changed. But, But look where it got you. Right. So you said you were an atheist for 25 years. Is that that's changed now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was an atheist 25 years. And by the way, I am still extremely uh, uh, skeptical because I'm a math guy. Everything to me is math. So you have no idea when every pastor I've debated, that's a brilliant pastor. (laughs) It always ends when we get cornered in a topic that cannot be addressed. And then they finally say, at the end of the day, you got to have faith. So no matter what I say right now, everything is eventually faith because yeah. there's a part of life where you're betting. Nobody can say I know 100% because you've never died uh, and gone to heaven to see what it looks like. But I will tell you a weird story about what happened to my life. When I was in the Army and I scored high on my PT score, they gave the high scores uh, uh, two days to get away and hang out with this one uh, uh, guy who owned a uh, camp by the lake. And we said, you know, we'll go. No problem. We've been in this boot camp thing for too long. We need a break. So we go to this place with one caveat. Every night we needed to do Bible study with them for one or two hours. I'm like, oh my gosh, please don't bring the Bible out. So we would sit there and he would start talking about the Bible. And anyways, eventually after the whole thing's done, it was like 20 of us at his house at this cabin. We leave and he pulls me aside. He says, son, this, this Bible was given to me by my parents, December 24th, 1974. I have it till today. He says, I think you need it more than I do. And uh, he gives it to me. I'm like, very weird. I said, thank you for the gift. Appreciate him. And, and I left. So I went back to my boot camp. I'm like, this was very weird. I said, you know what, God, I don't believe you exist, but I'm going to pray. And I started praying. This is what my prayer sounded like. God, I don't believe you exist. I think it's fake. I think it's a facade. I think it's an act. I think it's used to get money and all this other stuff from people. But I am willing to pray every day is what I'm going to do. So I started praying three times a day from 1997 on. I prayed three times a day for 20 straight, whatever it is, just three times. So one day I'm with my, uh, one of my girlfriends and her and I are in a relationship and we had a breakup and it was a very ugly one. And I'm at the top of Universal Studio City Walk and I'm in my car, my expedition. 
And she walks out of the car after a bad fight. And I'm just in tears because I'm in that 49. I have nothing going on in my life. Nothing to look forward to. I'm thinking about re-enlisting in the army. Oh. Like nothing. My car is going through a repo. They're trying to find it. I keep parking a car a mile out. So no one <laughs> I mean, like that. So anyways, long story short. Long story short, um, I'm in the uh, uh, expedition. It's two o'clock in the morning. I haven't talked to my mother for two or three years. And I said, look, God, I don't believe you exist, but if you exist, I want to hear from my mom. And I was extremely emotional in that moment. I said, I just want to hear her voice. And 30 seconds later, my phone rings from an unknown number. Mm-hmm. And when I answered this phone. You have no idea how flippant scared I was when I answered. <laughs> I answered. Yeah. The phone. It was my mom crying on the other line. And yeah. why are you calling me? She says, because I felt you were in pants. I had to get my number. This is a Nextel number. She says, I got it six months, but I haven't called you yet because I wasn't happy about you joining the U.S. Army. And uh, I spoke for a couple of minutes. I got off the phone. I got to tell you, I've never been this scared in my life. Yeah. Because I'm like, wow, you know, somebody is listening. And if this somebody is listening, man, this is some scary stuff here because that means the ask and the responsibility can be bigger. And what if this can really be scaled? Anyways, that, that's what happened. And from that moment on, I said, look, I mean, I'll, I'll go try to find something. So I went through like 20, 30 different churches. And then my skeptical side decided to study Scientology, Mormonism, Judaism, you know, all the churches I could run into, Muslim, all this stuff. I just kind of went through everything because I wanted to know all of it. And, uh, and then, you know, life changed. January 21st, 2004 is when my life changed. So now I have to ask, how did that, what was that life changing moment? Very hard because I went 17 months without sex and I almost killed people. I was like, this is not the easy life I chose. But, uh, you know, it's not an easy life. It's definitely not an easy life because temptation is out there. And I have uh, uh, my own set of temptations like everybody else does. I'm a man like any other man is. And, you know, when you're growing and you're winning, it's very important for you to have certain kind of systems to protect yourself from a lot of different things because you're always going to be tempted. This whole thing about you know, perfection and all that stuff's the biggest turnoff to me. Every time I go to a church and a pastor gets up and like this last Easter sermon that I heard, probably one of the worst Easter sermons I've ever heard. And this pastor's name, I'm not going to say it because it's a pretty big name pastor. He got up and he gave a, a message about, you are the problem in today's world. And he went through this entire, me- you got once a year where your church is filled and you can inspire people to want to consider. Yeah. And I go to this church. You got one opportunity to get non-believers to at least say, I'll go to church once or twice a month. And you judge the entire time. I mean, listen. Was he judging because so many people were there on Easter and they're not there the rest of the year? It was that part of his message? Church, but that's yeah. every yeah. church goes through. Yes. It's every single church. You have to, you have to laugh and woo me and give me the love side and give me the forgiveness side, not the judgment side. You know, yeah. no one's turned on by this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a big uh, on the perfection side and all that other stuff. I'm on the part about, hey, let's work, accountability, support, love, uh, forgiveness, all of that stuff. Yet at the same time, I'm a responsibility guy. I think the approach has got to be a different approach. But anyways, I'm not a pastor. I'm an insurance guy. I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm not telling (laughs) you guys what. But uh, that's that's briefly that life. It's not the easiest life because you're publicly pulling yourself in a position of a lot more accountability than you had before. Yeah. And a lot of people are counting on you. Um, you know, it's, it's their jobs, it's their life, it's their salary, like it's yep. their career. It's a, so 
you know, there's a there's a lot riding on you. It's not just you and your family, but you still have you and your family. And once you have kids and people to provide for, everything changes, right? Nothing can get in the way of you taking care of your own family. And so that pressure kind of just blows a little. And then when you know that other people have the same pressure and they're looking to you, that can that can be a lot, I would imagine. It would be, but I tell you, I tell yeah. you, nothing gives me more confidence than a man upstairs. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, when I say nothing, I mean nothing. Nothing gives me more confidence than that. There's a, there's a, there's a feeling I get that um, he has my back. I've never had a feeling like that in my life before. Is no. that all stemming from the time that your mom called you, like because you were doubting, and that that was like a transformational moment for you, it's and that one, just helped me. Yeah. One. One of them, yeah. and the other part is living in Iran, and you know, a lot of my friends died. How come I'm not dead? You know, yeah. how do we able to escape and go to Germany? And I came to the army here. Like so many, like if if I go back and look at my life, like there's two, 20 instances of me yeah. being able to completely ruin my life. And how come it didn't happen? How come something? So it's 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 a it's a high level of respect for yeah. knowing that he's had my back for all these years. So let's talk about that then. Um, you grew up in Iran. Do you have, what are some of the childhood memories you have there? You were young when you left. Yes, I was 10 years old. But, right. I, what so. are some of the childhood memories I had? Um, Other than Bible school. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's one of them. Um, you know, uh, uh, I remember going to a city called Esfahan. It's the only time my parents uh, went on a vacation together with me. Uh, we went to a city called Esfahan, which is just incredible. Esfahan, uh, 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 we went there for a couple of days. I remember going to a city called Bandar Pahlavi. And Bandar Pahlavi is, Bandar means port. And Pahlavi is the Shah's last name, Reza Shah Pahlavi. So Bandar Pahlavi, it's like saying Port Trump. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of like so Bandar Pahlavi. And uh, I would go to Bandar Pahlavi, and my uncle in Iran, uh, he would sell alcohol. And, you know, in America, selling alcohol is not a big deal. But in Iran, you're selling alcohol, it's like you're a drug dealer. So my uncle was a heavy-duty alcohol dealer, and he was good. And he was very much of a womanizer, and he got married so many times, we lost count. Like, he was he, he was all about that. So he would come home at night. I was like six years old. He would come, and I was spending, spending time at my grandma's house. And he would come 4 o'clock in the morning, drunk. Oh, Patrick, wake up. Wake up. Look at what I brought you. Look what I brought you. And I would wake up. He said, don't tell your mom. Don't tell your mom. But come here. And he would go make a plate of caviar and high-end caviar from Caspian Sea. And we would eat it with and no bread and just eat and devour. I can't tell you how much caviar I ate with this uncle of mine. Just nonstop caviar. <laughs> I'm a diehard caviar guy till today. But That's a circle. A lot of good memories. I watched Rocky Four probably a few hundred times in Iran. Um, really? Did you did you speak English as a child? No, it's translated in Farsi. So it's translated, okay. Yes, and yeah. if an American watches Rocky Four and Farsi, yeah. it sounds like they're cursing <laughs> the entire time because <clears throat> it's a rough language. Um, but you know, another memory is when we escaped. Yeah. When the war happened, we escaped to a city called Karaj. Karaj is like Palm Springs to L.A. Uh, when we escaped to Karaj, when the bombing was taking place, we were crossing a bridge one time. And 50 yards behind me, uh, a bomb dropped, and my dad said, don't look back. We were in a white Renault, me and my sister, and my mom and dad. I said, don't look back. And I look back, and we see the bridge just coming down. It was 50 oh yards. Gosh. I mean, that stays. That kind of stuff stays. So, yeah. yeah, so, you know, a lot of good memories and a lot of weird memories. 
what kind of courage did it take for your parents to to flee like that or or was it just like the only choice you know, i obviously cannot imagine what that would be like right so but i can imagine that when you have two tiny children and you're literally fleeing for your lives there's i mean just the- i mean my my uh, my mom was done with it yeah my dad told me the other day, even though my parents got a divorce, my dad said, your mom was just saying, we got to leave Iran. And we did. You know, and that cost them their divorce, by the way, leaving Iran. Okay. And, uh, but yeah, we, my mother's like, we can't do this anymore. Because I was about to turn 12 years old. At 12 years old, I got to serve the, US, serve the Iranian army. My mom says, I don't want to. At wanna... 12 years old, you have to serve in the army there. I'm sorry. At 12 years old, you get locked in like you can't leave the country because you have to serve the army. Wow. So when you're 12, it's draft. You can't do nothing about it. So my mom's like, nope, you're leaving. So, okay, let's leave. Oh my gosh. You know, as, as a mom of four boys, I can't say I really, you know, hold that against it. And that's your instinct. Your instinct no is, that's my baby. That's my son. And when you see all that unfolding around you, I mean, that seems like a pretty natural maternal instinct that you're just, gonna, so. nothing can override that. That's your, that's your child. Um, so two years in the refugee camp and that's where, I obviously never been to a refugee camp either, right? Was that just, did that seem like something we like, oh my gosh, I'm in a refugee camp or was it just normal? Like normal. for you, just, very yeah, normal. just, this is just yeah. where we live. Yeah, yeah, very normal. I mean, listen, I can't tell you how much fun I had at the refugee camp. That's what's so weird about it. I had a blast at the refugee camp. I mean, I met people from Albania, people from Poland, people from Yugoslavia, yeah. from Czechoslovakia, people from Afghanistan, Pakistan, if you if you like people and you're curious, it was a great experience um, because you were always meeting somebody else that was escaping their country because of communism, socialism, or dictatorship. Yeah. It's very simple. Everybody has something in common. They're escaping their homeland. And as much as you love your homeland, you're like, I wish my homeland was different for me to stay there, but I'm escaping it. Right. And we're hoping we can find a way to come to U.S. And not everybody was able to go to U.S. So the day we got the green card to come to U.S., listen, it was heaven. When we landed in uh, 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 New York, uh, at the John F. Kennedy Airport, I was yeah. looking for a Rocky. I'm like, where's Rocky? <laughs> I was looking for all those guys. Huh. But it was heaven on earth the day we landed in the in U.S. Heaven. Uh, JFK. So for people, you know, I'm from New York in the country, but I go to JFK, fly out a lot. And to even that just puts it in context, right? For somebody to look at JFK and think it was heaven on earth. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to go to JFK, right? Like, so, <laughs> Yes. But, uh, you know, it's just little things. I think if you listen to them or pay attention, it just puts everything in context. That's amazing. So you're in JFK and where do you go? Do you, you wind up not staying in New York. You no, went we went to LA. We went to LA. To and LA. LA. Yeah. Yes. And then, so what ultimately prompted you to join the military? So here, like here you are, there's a lot of people who are born and raised in this country and have no interest or it, I'm not serving my country, you know? Um, but you come to this country. I'll give you three reasons why I joined okay. okay. So some of them may be the reasons you're hoping for. Some I'm just. I'm not hoping for anything. I'm curious. So here's why I joined the army. So one, I joined the army because uh, a recruiter named Jesus Guerra followed up with me since 14 years old. Okay. Yeah. And he kept telling me, he knew my grades because everybody in school knew my grades. I one point a GPA where your counselor thinks, but David, I feel sorry for your dad for having a heart attack, but I understand why. Anybody who had you as a kid would have a heart attack as well. Oh, well I mean, that's, that's the reputation of this guy. So yeah. Jesus Guerra says, you got to join the army. He comes and follows up with me for three years, four years to join the army. 
his pitch was women love men in uniform. It was that simple. That's yeah. not the first time I've heard somebody that, say that, that that's how they were recruited. Yes. So that is, yes. Yes, that is not the first time I've heard. Go ahead. I mean, when you're 14 years old and you're 6'1", 135, yeah. and oh you're God. so skinny, it's insane. I mean, it's a very easy pitch. So that's that part. <laughs> the other part was I just wanted to get away from everybody. I was so yeah. sick and tired of the family politics. I'm like, just leave me the hell alone. I just want to get away from everybody. What do you mean, the family politics? Yeah, just the divorce and who you okay. want to live with. You support mom. I'm like, listen, okay. just, I'm just, just showing her the army. Yeah. And then the other one was the, the night, the day I joined the army, the night prior to that, I was in my sister's apartment. We partied till four or five o'clock in the morning. And we partied in her jacuzzi at this apartment complex. And it almost got her evicted. And I said, look, man, if my sister gets evicted, it's going to be my fault. I called my dad. I said, dad, um, I got to go join the army. He said, seriously. I said, yeah. So I got fired from Burger King that day. I'm trying to impress you right now with my resume. No, I love these stories. Like this is, this is the real stuff, right? This is. Yeah. yeah I went to the recruiting station and Jesus Guerra signed me up and I said, I'll sign up if you can get me in the army in the next couple of days. He says, no way we can do that. But I was in the army two weeks later. I went to map station. It was over with. I was in the U S army. And you were still young. You were what? 17, 18, 18 years old. Yeah. Crazy. So then you're in the military and how does that go for you? Uh, heaven on earth. I mean, it was just one of the greatest decisions I ever made in my life. One of the greatest decisions I ever made in my life, joining the army, uh, went to boot camp, And then I went to AIT. I was a Hummer mechanic. And then I went to 101st airborne division air assault. And while I was there, um, met a lot of great people, a lot of tough people, people that pushed me, challenged me. And, uh, it wasn't necessarily easy, but I learned a lot of discipline. And, uh, I never forget when I went into my army unit at the 101st airborne division, they said, uh, we want to take the top recruits and we want you to watch a movie that just came out. That's about your units. I'm like, okay, whatever. We'll go watch a movie. And we went into this auditorium. There was 600 of us and this movie we were able to watch before everybody else was able to watch. So in a sense, saying, let's see, let's see what this movie is. And the movie was Saving Private Ryan. Uh. And, and I tell you one thing, when we watched this movie, we were like a bunch of high testosterone men were emotional, ready to go fight for this country. <laughs> so amazing. And uh, the level of camaraderie, it's, it's wonderful. Like 22 years later, one of my friends that's right now sitting, uh, 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 was just sitting here, stepped out right now to make a phone call. We met at the 101st Airborne Division 22 years ago. We've been friends since. Nice. See, that is great. The relationships that can kind of carry over like that. And they would, one of uh, my friends, one of his first acting roles in a military themed movie was Saving Private Ryan. And wow. he um, and that being in that movie is what drew him into the military community. And he's then been in several movies in 13 hours and a bunch of movies. And um, now he just put out his own movie to support the military and give back. So it's amazing. Um yeah, it's amazing those stories and what they do. And one little thing, like that movie had an impact on you. That movie had an impact on him, which really, I, I digress, I guess. But I love those little overlaps, <laughs> overlaps in life and how it carries out. So I'll have to tell him that you watched that movie that had an impact on you. He would, that would make him happy, I think. Um, all right. So then you're in the military and you get out of the military and you have to figure out what to do. A lot of people have a difficult time getting out of the military and finding the way in civilian life for that lack, the camaraderie is lost, the, you know, the brotherhood, the, the support, the structure, the discipline, it all goes away. And you're in a civilian world where civilians have no idea 
about what it's like to serve in the military and they've evolved, they've gone to college, they've got these jobs. So did you find yourself like kind of in that gap a little, like well, now what? And, and have to figure it out? Yeah. I mean, when I got out, there was one Hummer dealership because I'm a Hummer mechanic. So yeah. there was one Hummer dealership and it was in Thousand Oaks, Camarillo. And so I went to the guy, I said, hey, I'm a Hummer mechanic. I said, that's great. We already have one. I said, but I'm a Hummer <laughs> mechanic. He says, look, we understand, but we have one Hummer mechanic that we need and we're totally fine. We don't need another. It was a $13 an hour job. I was so excited for this $13 an hour job. So then I said, okay, I'm good with Hummers and I know how to shoot rifles. I don't know what I'm going to do with rifles outside of being a hitman, which is not a route I was going to take because I wanted to do something real. So then I said, okay, let's see what else you can do, Pat. And I just said, bodybuilding. I'm going to go into fitness. I went and worked at uh, Morgan's uh, at uh, Bally Total Fitness. And uh, that's kind of how my sales career got started. See, that's cool. So you had to sell gym memberships. Yes. But you struggled with that. Uh, at at first, the, the first yeah. month I did, I mean, I couldn't stand the first month. I'm like, I am not a sales. I can't sell anything. I'm not having a good time with this. And my guy, Francisco is like, look, you're going to be a great sales guy, but here's what we're going to do with you. I'm going to send you to a mall, Fox Hills mall to learn how to sell there. I said, let me get this straight. I can't sell a gym membership at the gym where all the equipment is here. You want me to go sell a gym membership at Fox Hills mall? He says, yes. So what are you talking about? He says, because if you can visualize to people what the gym looks like, you can definitely sell memberships here. So go to the mall first. I went to the mall and I'm around these other guys. It's funny. I got a text from a guy named Gabriel yesterday. He and I were selling memberships at Fox's mall back in 1999. And so I started watching these guys and then I said, you know what? This could work for me. And then I sold my first membership where this lady bought a membership for $75 down, $33 a month for 36 months. And she's literally buying it from me. I'm asking myself, I would never do what you're doing, lady. I would never do <laughs> Mom, what are you doing? You haven't even seen the gym. And she's like, oh, here we go. So then I sold another one. And the next, you know, 30 days later, I was the rookie of the month. And then I stayed in sales. The rest is history. See, so isn't that cool, though, that that guy, I, I miss his name, Nicola. Francisco. Francisco. Francisco, sorry. But that that he just said to you, like, he, he could have just let you quit, but like, you know what? You do suck. You haven't sold anything. You're out. I need performers and all this, but something for whatever reason, he just looked at you and said, I, I see that you can do like, you know, he just took the time to dig a little deep and what a difference in your life trajectory that had. No doubt about it. No doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. Has there been someone in your life when people come into your, your company, your work, I can imagine you probably do the same for them to some extent. I mean, there's a line, right? How do you find that line between like digging deep and saying, no, I see something in you. I'm going to dig a little deeper in you or just knowing when, you know what, you're right. Like this isn't it for you and you need to go. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the, the people business is a tough business because, you know, you have to have some kind of a, if I don't know who a person wants to be and what kind of a life they want to live, it's kind of tough to drive them. You know, I need to know what motivates you. I need to know what drives you. I need to know what you want in life. I need to know who you want to be in life. And then from there, we can come out with a formula to help you get there. But if, if you don't know what your people really want in their lives and who they want to be, it's kind of tough to drive them. You got, you got to get, you got to, and, and by the way, the more people are around, the more you kind of figure out what they want to do. And the more they're talking to you, you're talking to them, but it varies case to case, but I can't tell you how many stories like that I have today. One guy, I'll give you a perfect story. <laughs> One of the guys that right now is texting me, 
And while I'm on the phone with you, uh, he sends me this text. He just bought a new car. Let me show you what car he just bought. Okay. Okay. So he just bought this car. Nice. I don't know, that car? Yeah. A blue Lamborghini. Okay. And the car that he sold, uh, uh, his old car was a red Ferrari. Okay. Now this guy is a guy that was a bill collector. And when he came to, to my office, he said, I'd like to work with you. I said, uh, uh, which office are you coming from? He told me which office he was coming from. I said, I'm not comfortable with that office. He says, what do you mean? I said, I don't trust anybody in that office. He says, are you serious? I said, yeah. I said, listen, our office, you know, we, we're the number one office. If you want to come here, I got to know certain things you got to clean up about your life and yourself. He says, what? I said, you got to show me you'll go to church 12 weeks in a row. He says, you're serious. I said, yeah, you do that. I'll let you in my office. He says, you're serious. I said, yeah. And every Tuesday night, I want you to come to Santa Monica stairs and show me you know how to exercise. This guy's like thinking I'm, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> so I said, if you want, let me know if you want to take this challenge. So he did. He went to church yeah. 12 in a row. And then every Tuesday night at 1030, he would meet me at Santa Monica stairs. It's like 177 stairs that we would do 10 or 15 times. And I got to know him and he got to know me. And he was making 50 grand at that time. And last month, 50 grand a year at that time. And last month, we paid him $116,000 in a month. He's got a wife, two kids, and his life's changed. So this guy, for me, at one point was a guy that's like, I don't really know if I, this is, I'm just a bill collector. I don't know if, you know, yeah. but he had such a good vibrant attitude that I knew there's something, something special could happen with this guy. And uh, I gave him three nicknames. I'll give you the three nicknames he graduated. His first nickname <laughs> was Rico Suave because he was way too good with the ladies. And I said, we got to change his nickname. His second nickname was Seabiscuit. If you've seen the movie Seabiscuit, matter of fact, if he calls my phone, when he calls my phone, his nickname on my phone is still Seabiscuit. Okay, just so you know that. So I called him Seabiscuit because he was an underestimated horse. People, didn't, people underestimate him. So he was the youngest sibling out of four. And then his new nickname is the Mexican John F. Kennedy. So it's very simple. <laughs> That's amazing. Nicknames. That's amazing. I, I, love, I love that. I, I'm so glad I asked that question. All right, so... You are a husband and a father, obviously. Can I ask quickly, because I love relationships. I like love stories. I like all this. At what point did you meet your wife? Had you already created the success or were you in the process of creating that? Like, Where were you? Great question. So I met my wife in June of 02 when I was with my ex and she was with her ex. And both of our exes were in the Hollywood business. It's so weird. And mine was in acting and fashion, and hers was in music and production. And we would go out, and it looked like they belonged more together than we did. And now my wife is from Texas, and, and uh, so she's, you know, Texan, Houston, the whole nine. But I met her in June of 02, and the first person she spoke to was my girlfriend. And uh, one of my uh, good friends at the time, who ended up being my groomsman, came up to me in the bathroom, and he says, uh, Pocahontas is here. I said, Pocahontas. He says, you're going to see a girl in here that's gorgeous. And her hair is all the way down to her lower back. And apparently she used to be a model and she modeled for Chevrolet, Nike, and all this other stuff. And she was one of the pageant people. I said, come on. So he says, no, you got to look at this girl. So I go inside very easy. She's talking to my ex. So I'm like, this is great. I'm going to introduce myself. So I go and I meet her. Nothing happens for five and a half years. She's in a completely different office. I'm in a different office. And one day in Palm Springs, she's a, 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 we're having dinner and we change seats. And I sit next to her. I said, are you single? She said, yes. I said, what are you looking for in a man? And she, you know, described the man. And I said, I think I fit this profile. 
And I always uh, try to hook her up with my friends. Always. I'm like, this is a good wife. You guys got to date her. And none of my friends were able to get her to be their girlfriend. And finally, I said, if you guys are not going to do it, I'm going to do it. So we started dating. And uh, on our second date, I got her a, a book called 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged on our second date. And I said, you need to read the book. I kind of know what I'm looking for. And she read it a week later on Saturday. We went through all the questions and answers for six hours. And I said, I'm probably going to marry this girl. And, and by the way, I want you to know this. I tell her this all the time. If this never works out, I will never remarry ever again. Yeah. Marriage isn't for everybody. But for me, and the reason why this is working out is because she is the most easiest human being I've met in my life. I've never met anybody as easy going as her. When I first met, I thought it was fake. I said, there's no way a person can be like this. And she's just like that. She's so easy. She's so easy going and simple. And she's great with the kids. And she takes notes on what hour she nursed the kids and how she pumped the milk. And I mean, she oh is. Oh my gosh. And by the way, she got all the three kids natural, no Pitocin, no epidural. Not, I'm like, I said, man, that's I, badass. I would never, <laughs> I'm like, dude, I would, yeah. I would do a C-section appointment three weeks. But I'm like, you're not even <laughs> I'm, let's go get this thing. But she's, she's just like that. And I'm like, okay, cool. If you're so easy and chill. And I told her, I said, I'm going to work hard. I'm not a nine to five husband. If you want a nine to five husband, it isn't this guy. And she accepted it. And so nice. it's worked out well for us. I mean, was your first date, you took her to P.F. Chang on your first date? Yes, we went to P.F. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk quickly. We go a lot at, at American Snippets. We talk a lot about the American dream. We obviously believe that it is alive and well. You are a perfect example of the fact that anybody can be in this country from any situation and make whatever they want in their life, no matter what they're facing, right? But we know that American dream looks a lot different to everybody who, who talks about it. So I think you've answered it in, in parts here, but I'm going to ask you like, holy, what does the American dream mean to you? So for me, the number one yeah. benefit America offers is free enterprise, is to start your own business and build the kind of a life you want to live. Here, here's the thing. Okay. Uh, next week on Monday, I go on a tour, Okay. And we'll fly from uh, uh, Addison to Modesta, California. I'll speak for to about 1,000 people. And then from Modesta, California, we'll go to Burbank. And then we'll go to Santa Ana. And then we'll go to Oak Brook, uh, uh, Illinois. And then we'll go to Annapolis, uh, 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 Maryland, right? And we're going to speak to around seven, 8,000 people during that span. Here's, here's the one thing I'm always going to be talking about. Freedom of assembly. If I want to campaign and pitch a message to an audience and talk to them about the concept of capitalism, I can do it in, in America. Can't do it in every country. Freedom of assembly is so powerful, number one. Number two, freedom of speech. If you want to be a successful comedian, one of the routes of being a great comedian is find a way to make fun of the president. Many people have done it. Will Ferrell was incredible at mimicking uh, President Bush. You know, I'm in, I'm in my ranch at Crawford, Texas, you know, R&R. &R, and, you know, we're going to talk about some important topics like keeping steroids out of T-ball. You know, he would say some weird things like this. People yeah. would crack up. My guy's such a good impersonation. So freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and free enterprise. Those things are priceless to me. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. That is uh, the last one I'll ask you here. I appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us. I love your story. I love that you came here and found such success, worked for it and that you're giving back to other people and showing them the way as well. So thank you for all that you do. And I want to give you props, you know, more power to you for, you know, uh, the man upstairs uses us in many different ways for you to have gone through what you went through with your husband and four kids. I have a lot of respect for you for being able to use that in a positive way to impact others. 
and uh, very excited about the direction you guys are going. And I'm glad that Taya was able to bring us together. So congratulations for what you guys are doing. Keep at it. Yeah, I, I love her too. She's been a great friend and supporter. P.S. She told me to tell you that she just bought that same book for a friend of hers. One things. Yeah, she said she has a friend who just got who is proposed to his girlfriend after five years. And she's like, tell him I bought that book. So I'm glad, I'm glad you reminded me. So thank you. Thank you very much. All right. You have you. a good one. You too. Bye-bye. There you have it, everyone. That wraps up another episode of American Sippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I would personally like to thank Patrick Bet David for being here, sitting down with us and sharing his story. If you got any value out of today's episode or any episode that we've done in the past for that matter, please share this with a friend, share it on social media, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews go a really long way in helping us get these stories out there in front of more people, so we would greatly appreciate that as well. And if you want to learn more about Patrick Bet David, uh, you want to watch the full video interview, you want to see the full featured article we did on him and his story, uh, and follow him on social media, just go to americansnippets.com forward slash 099. Also, don't forget, we have our Great American Summit coming up in April of 2020. Right now, we have an early bird offer um, pre-launch for our highest level seating. There are only 50 seats of us, 50 of these seats available. So you're going to want to get yours quick before they run out. This is going to be an amazing event where you can unleash your patriotism and your potential with our world-class speakers, uh, trainers, and performers. And actually, uh, Taya Kyle is going to be emceeing that event as well. So go to greatamericansummit.com to learn more. Uh, and speaking of Taya Kyle, she is our guest for our 100th episode, which is going to air next week. And, and for those of you who don't know who she is. She is the wife of American sniper Chris Kyle. She is a New York Times bestselling author and a former Fox News contributor. And she has a brand new book out called American Spirit. And she was kind enough actually to feature uh, my partner and fiance Barbara Allen and American Snippets in her new book. So we are super grateful and really excited for that too. So make sure you tune in next week for our 100th episode. And we will see you then. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are.